You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's October 4th. Earlier this week, China celebrated its National Day, marking the 70th anniversary of the country's founding. In light of this occasion, Rand's Timothy Heath wrote about China's recent history, the markets left on the international community, and what the future might hold. The next few decades may see China's impact on the world reach new heights, he says. But Beijing also faces some serious domestic and international obstacles on its path to becoming a dominant global leader. A slowing economy poses the largest hurdle. Just last month, Chinese authorities injected another $126 billion to stimulate growth. Moreover, the country's debt burden is growing, income disparity soars, corruption persists, and the population is aging. There's also the trade war with the U.S. and the protests in Hong Kong, which erupted again this week. Heath says, quote, With its economy softening and its politics gridlocked, an increasingly besieged China seems less and less likely to realize all of its goals. The China dream has never seemed closer and never more elusive. Rand's Becca Wasser designs, runs, and manages war games for U.S. military and government officials. Too often, she says, she's the only woman in the room. Participants don't expect her to stand up and run the game or to be the decision maker. Instead, they often expect her to be the note taker or the event coordinator or to get coffee. Woman wargamers like Wasser are rare because in wargaming, she says, you have to learn by doing. And there are significant barriers to women doing the work of designing and executing wargames, not to mention getting into the field of national security at all. While many women start out by doing managerial or administrative work for games, they often find themselves stuck on that track. So what are the consequences of this gender divide in wargaming? Without women leaders, designers, or players in these games, opportunities to uncover new and innovative strategies are falling by the wayside, Wasser says. She's seen this herself in games that she's led. For example, in a game exploring future technology, male participants created a list of military capabilities that focused heavily on systems that could be used to attack and destroy targets. In contrast, women in this game included more systems like reconnaissance platforms that provided better tools to more quickly alert warfighters of adversary activities and locations. This isn't to say that female wargamers approach critical problems differently or focus a game on soft security issues like gender and humanitarian activities. Rather, they are likely to have different perspectives based in part on their experiences navigating a man's world. Wasser is tired of being a rarity. She doesn't want to be the only woman in the room anymore. That's why she's part of the movement to increase women's participation in and amplify women's voices on national security. Along with other RAND colleagues, she recently worked with the nonprofit Girl Security to run a war game designed specifically for teenage girls. And when it's possible, Wasser aims for half the players in the game she runs to be women. She says, if women have a place on the battlefield and the game board, then women have a place in wargaming. What are the biggest challenges facing U.S. Army families? 
To find out, Rand researchers surveyed more than 8,500 Army spouses. Among those we talked to, the most reported problem areas were work-life balance, military practices and culture, and spouses' own well-being. Specifically, feeling stressed, overwhelmed, or tired, which applied to both the spouse and to the soldier, was the top issue among Army spouses. As far as getting help for these problems, Army spouses said that they used a number of different resources. The respondents' top resources were personal networks outside the military, other military spouses, a military-covered medical provider, and social media and the internet. When they did use a resource for support, most spouses said their needs were met, although 32% said they still had unmet needs even after seeking help. Notably, the Army spouse's most common reason for not using a resource for support was not knowing who to contact for help. In light of recent attacks on Western military bases in Somalia, it's worth revisiting a 2016 RAND report on al-Shabaab. Our findings indicated that the United States did make some strides in weakening the group. The key to U.S. progress? A tailored engagement strategy that involved deploying a small number of special operations forces to conduct targeted strikes, provide intelligence, and build the capacity of local partner forces to conduct ground operations. The report also found that progress could slip without continued pressure and reform. The authors warned that al-Shabaab could bounce back if U.S. and other Western governments did not address Somalia's political, economic, and governance challenges at the heart of the conflict. The rates of overdose fatalities involving heroin or prescription opioids have slowed in recent years. But those deaths are now outnumbered by overdoses involving synthetic opioids, primarily fentanyl. In a recent congressional briefing, RAND experts Bryce Pardo and Bo Kilmer explain what's behind this trend, and what could be done to help reverse it. First, how do synthetic opioids enter the U.S. in the first place? The two main avenues are cargo shipments from China and drug trafficking across the southwest border. And the internet has also contributed to the rise in synthetic opioids. The fentanyl crisis, however, is not yet a national one. The issue is still highly concentrated in the eastern half of the country. This means there's reason to be concerned about the problem spreading west. Especially worrying is if it happens in the form of counterfeit prescription pills, which could bring a new level of exposure to these potent drugs. So, what should policymakers focus on to address this problem? Here's Bo Kilmer. To address our problem with synthetic opioids, I think U.S. federal policymakers need to focus on three different areas. One In places that are already swamped with fentanyl, we need to figure out how to reduce exposure. Number two, we need to get creative about disrupting supply. Realize that west of the Mississippi, fentanyl still hasn't become entrenched. We're not going to eliminate supply, but if we can delay the onset, even by a couple of years, we're going to save thousands of lives. And the third area where I think the federal government could be really useful is improving surveillance and monitoring. And think about what we did at the height of the AIDS HIV epidemic. We were putting tremendous resources uh, into this, and we need to be doing the same thing with respect to opioids. You can find the complete video of this briefing, as well as our latest report on the fentanyl crisis, at RAND.org. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. See you next week.